thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 0214604567 We are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Chris, good morning. Hey, good morning, Reddy. Good morning. What's this about preserved uh, collection of dinosaur fossils in the UK or found by UK scientists? Tell us about that. It's more what's lurking inside these fossils because ever since people began to dig up the remains of the past, they thought that these were just a stony replica or a facsimile of what once walked the earth. And then about 10 years ago, a lady called Mary Schweitzer, who's a US researcher, published a very famous paper, but controversial, in the journal Science, showing that from about a 68-million-year-old Tyrannosaurus rex fossil, she had managed to extract what she said were tissues and cells. So you think, wow, there might be the actual remains of the original organism still there in the fossil. And as I say, it was controversial at the time. There have been a, a number of papers since that have both supported and, contra- and, uh, and refuted her controversial findings. But now there's another paper come out from scientists in London. This is a group, uh, Susanna Maidment and her colleagues at Imperial College in London. It's in Nature Communications this week. They went to the Natural History Museum in London where they have lots and lots of dinosaur fossils and they asked for just some samples of fossils that they could study. And these are fairly low-grade, low-value fossils because they're in pretty poor condition but they subjected them to very precise microscopy techniques and also some molecular techniques that enable you to remove original chemicals that might be in these fossils and in both cases they've got evidence from these dinosaur fossils which include leg bones and also claws that there are original blood cells in there and also bits of protein in other words the sinews and the fibrous tissue from dinosaurs that would have been around something like 75 million years ago so the point they're making in their paper is actually uh, the remains of tissue and blood and blood cells in fossils is probably a lot more common than, mm-hmm. than we had first thought. And, and the other nice thing it does prove is you can get blood out of a stone by the look of it then. Mm, okay, all right. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just quite curious about how actually the team analyse their specimens. Uh, you know, what, what method is used to, to, to analyse something like this? Well, in order to see things at the sort of scale you need to see them at, they used electron microscopy, which is where you take the specimen and you put it into a beam of electrons. And because electrons are extremely small, they can visualise extremely small subjects. And when they did this, they were able to see structures that were vaguely egg-shaped that resemble red blood cells and they're very similar to the shape of emu red blood cells that they also looked at and because birds are the closest surviving relatives of dinosaurs birds are effectively living dinosaurs birds are a good study control to compare with dinosaur tissue the other thing they did with their microscope was to look at these potential stringy fibrous bits in their fossils and our fibrous tissue is very rich in a protein called collagen and seen down a microscope at very, very high magnification, collagen has a stripy pattern, a bit like a zebra. And this is because regularly in the protein there are certain types of building block called amino acids of a certain type 
which give it this stripy pattern, and they saw that as well. And then when they did the molecular analysis, you're using a stream of particles at very high energies to knock particles out of the fossil, which you draw up into a tube and feed into an analyzer, and it can use the mass or, or the, the weight of the particles to work out what they must be. And all of these things done together suggest that there are the building blocks of cells, the building blocks of proteins, and these physical structures left in these fossils, which are in pretty poor condition, suggesting that you don't have to have very special sort of status of preservation in order to get this important information out of these remains. Mm. And then I have a question, uh, Chris. It's, it's come up uh, uh, before, uh, asked differently, but does the illness that causes death, the cause of death, uh, have any bearing on the rate of decomposition? Well, it can do. It depends. If you talk to your own Professor Lee Berger in South Africa, yes. he will tell you that the reason he's made some of the amazing discoveries he has is because the uh, Australopithecines that he's been looking at at the Malapa Cave are in an amazing state of preservation because these individuals effectively fell into what was a death trap. They fell into a sinkhole in the bottom of which was a soft mud. And when they go into that mud and are then held in situ and the mud turns into effectively concrete over geological time, then you don't have erosion, you don't have the same processes which would break down tissue if it was left on the surface of the earth where animals could scavenge it, the weather could get at it, and the temperature and conditions are more permissive for microorganisms to attack the tissues. So yes, the way in which you die will have a very big bearing on how your body decomposes after and, and over what sort of time scale and how well your remains and whatever does remain are preserved. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Okay, hopefully that has improved and we you will be able to hear Chris. But let's go straight to the line. Jenny in Bryanston, good morning. Hi, Ruby. Hi, Dr. Chris. Mm. Hello, Jenny. Um, it's my understanding from school that chlorophyll is made by green plants. So how do the maroon and grey plants in my garden make chlorophyll? Hmm, very interesting question. Okay, well the reason chlorophyll is green is because plants have decided, in inverted commas, to use a certain combination of colours in order to absorb the most energy from the sunlight. Green is the wavelengths or colours of light that the plants are not absorbing. They're reflecting those colours back to you, but they're absorbing everything else. So if you see a leaf that's red, it just means that the dyes or the chlorophyll chemicals that are in that leaf and the other pigments that are in there are reflecting red light to you, but they're absorbing everything else. So just because a plant isn't green, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have chlorophyll and it doesn't mean it's not absorbing light. It's just reflecting back at you certain combinations of colours because those are the pigments which are in the leaf. It can still photosynthesise. Mm -hmm. If you look into the sea, you'll see that there are many marine algae which are also different colours, including very red algae. Uh, they're rejecting red light and that's what you're seeing because it's reflected back at you, but the other colours are being absorbed and therefore the plant can photosynthesise underwater very effectively. And they tend to go for red um, near the surface, but not deeper down, because red gets very heavily absorbed by water. So in deep water, you won't see a red-coloured coral or a red-coloured alga, but you, you will see ones that are a bluer colour or a greener colour, because those lights do tend to get through the water and then come back to your eye more easily. Thank you so much, Jenny. And Francois in Northcliffe, what's your question? Well, uh, really, and Chris, good morning. I would just like to know why the most... Oh, no, you're breaking, France. Hold on, hold on. You're breaking. Let's try again. Why? What? 
I just like to know why commercial aircraft are limited to fly under just under a thousand kilometers an hour, like normally nine hundred and eighty, from the smaller ones up until the big A three eighty. And why why are they not exceeding a faster speed which will make the journey short? Right, okay, so why do planes go at the speed that they do and why has Concorde, which was the world's fastest commercial aeroplane, ceased to trade? The reason is that as you go faster, you encounter more air resistance and more air resistance means you're doing more work against the atmosphere in order to move your aeroplane. And it's not a straight line relationship. In other words, if I double my speed, I don't double my fuel spend. In fact, drag scales as the cube. In other words, if I double my speed, I actually have to encounter three times, uh, sorry, eight times the amount of drag force. And the thing that gives you the ability to counter the drag is the fuel. So if I double my speed, I've got to burn eight times more fuel in order to go the same distance. And for economy reasons, it doesn't make economic sense for an airline to fly its aeroplanes at twice the speed. And yes, you would like that very much, but you would have to pay eight times more for your ticket. Most people would be happy to pay for the extended journey time with their own time and save what's in their wallet for later, <laughs> which is why aeroplanes do that. Also, if you're going to fly at those sorts of speeds, it puts enormous structural load on the aeroplane. So you've got to design your aeroplanes better. Your engine life is going to change because the engine are running much harder and that means that you've got to maybe service them more often and you've got to have a higher level of, of um, control of what your airline so air engines are doing so there's a whole lot of factors that come into it and in order to keep air, air travel safe and effective and best for the environment we tend to fly at about 500 miles an hour 800 kilometers an hour because that's the happiest compromise between all of those factors who came in first on 021-446-0567-011-8830-702. Sarah in Randburg, good morning to you. I wonder why you're asking this. <laughs> Hi, yeah, I'm asking because I wanted to find out, um, you know, so many people are here of having Botox. Um, and I wanted to find out just the science of biology behind it because obviously it doesn't sound, um, you know, all that uh, safe to someone that doesn't know it, that you you paralyzing nerves in in your face, but yet it's it's obviously taken off, and so many people are doing it. It's almost becoming mm. uh, normal. So I was wondering, what's the um, dangers maybe behind it, and and what is the actual process that happens to your your nerves and your your skin when you do it? Okay. Well, the danger is you end up looking like Joan Rivers, mm. but mm. <laughs> the, the science behind it is that the chemical Botox is what powerful toxins known in nature and it's made by microorganisms specifically Clostridium botulinum. This organism is known to cause food poisoning because it grows in food which has been boiled up to remove all of the oxygen from it and then spores of this organism microbe get into the food and flourish in the oxygen deprived conditions of the cold food and they secrete this toxin which when you come along and eat the food get into you and it goes to the point where nerve cells communicate with muscle cells. There's something called a neuromuscular junction. And there, at the end of the nerve cell, are collections or little packets of what are called nerve transmitter or neurotransmitter molecules. And when the nerve becomes active and wants to send a message to the muscle to tell the muscle to do something, the, the nerve releases some of this neurotransmitter onto the muscle and this makes the muscle contract. The botulism toxin, Botox, goes into the end of the nerve cell and it paralyzes, quite literally, that 
machinery so that the nerve can't release the nerve transmitter molecule onto the muscle and this stops the nerve activating the muscle. If you inject small amounts of Botox into the skin in areas where you have wrinkles, the muscles relax in that area which causes the skin to puff out and it stretches open the wrinkle so the wrinkle effectively becomes less apparent. It doesn't completely disappear because of course when the effect wears off because all the time the nerve is making new machinery to talk to the muscle and it slowly replaces the machinery that's been irreversibly paralysed by the Botox so eventually the effect wears off but for the time you have it active you have a, a more wrinkle-free appearance. It's not just for cosmesis, though. This mm -hmm. is very, very powerful and very, very useful therapeutically. There are some people who have conditions where muscles go into spasm. One of them is a painful condition in the neck where you have one called torticollis. There's also another uh, annoying condition where you can get twitching of, say, an eyelid. And under those conditions, small, discrete injections of Botox can weaken the muscles a little tiny bit, making people... Uh, get relief from that condition and also even people who suffer from excessively sweaty palms hyperhidrosis if you put a small injection into how the nervous system communicates with the sweat glands in the is you have to go upstream of the hand to do this but you can also manage that condition with the same technique so it's a very powerful therapy uh, and also has a cosmetic benefit there are probably few long-term risks mm. that we know of at the moment of doing this but why is it uh, i mean i'm just following up on this that uh, you find people like joan rivers for example, that you don't do it once, but you have to do it again and again. So it's not a lifetime in investment. Uh, so from the moment of doing it the first time to having to repeat uh, uh, the treatment, I mean, how long do the results actually last? Do you go back uh, to having the sag or, uh, you know, normal, as it were, uh, progression uh, of the skin? The way that nerve cells work is that they are little dynamic machines. They're continuously making things and the things that they make eventually get broken and the nerve cell recycles them and makes new ones. In the same way that you repaint your house or you rebuild a wall or you replace the tyres on your car. When you come along with Botox, you effectively destroy irreversibly a structure in the nerve cell and it takes the nerve cell a while to make a new one to replace it so it's rather like i've come along and slashed the tires on someone's car it doesn't mean the car can't go along anymore it just means it changes the appearance and usefulness of the car for a little while until someone goes and gets some new tires for it it's the same with your nerve cells you inject the botox it turns off this machinery that the nerve cell uses to secrete the nerve transmitter chemical until such time as the nerve has had time to make more of the chemicals and this is going to be dependent on how long it is, how long the nerve is, how far the nerve is from the spinal cord or from where, where the nerve cell body that controls that nerve is situated and also how metabolically active the nerve is and how much Botox you put in. So if you put lots in you're going to get paralysis of all of the machinery mm -hmm. and that's going to be really bad um, put a little bit in and you'll weaken the muscle just a tiny bit and it will take less time before the communication is re-established okay well all i know is that perhaps you know half the people who go for the treatment don't actually need it uh, i think but anyway that's just me let's go to uh keith and ranberg hi hi good morning Lee. good morning chris a few years ago, I posed a question to you um, that Neil Armstrong said if you go to Mars, you have to wait about a year before you can return to Earth, and you gave me a very satisfactory answer with regards to your limbs being out in space all the time, wouldn't be able to handle the gravity. Now, would a centrifugal forces work in space? You know, like you still see in Star Wars and stuff like that with the rotating thing, uh, give me a false gravity, would that work? Yes, it would work. One of the really big problems that space travellers face is that when you leave the Earth's gravity, 
you're in what we call microgravity. When you're in orbit, you're actually falling towards the Earth all the time in a circle. You're falling towards the Earth but missing, effectively. And this means that your bones and your muscles are not being subject to the normal loading that a person who's ambulatory and going about their business on Earth encounters. When you get out of bed in the morning, when you step out of the shower, when you run for a bus, when you jump off of a chair onto the floor, those shocks are strengthening your bones and your muscles and sending a strong growth signal to those tissues saying, make more of me. When you're in orbit and you're in microgravity, those stimuli do not exist. And very quickly, people's bone ages. And an astronaut who does not take protection, in other words, taking regular exercise and taking uh, also some bone protecting agents like calcium and in some cases other drugs to stop the bones eroding they can come home with osteoporosis as though they had a skeleton of an 80 year old same for your muscles so what astronauts do in space actually is they exercise against usually an elastic band in the same way as you can buy those things that enable you to do pull-ups and that kind of thing to stretch your tummy muscles and strengthen them Astronauts do a daily and fairly rigorous exercise regime in order to make sure that they sh keep their muscles and bones strong. And in fact, there is a disadvantage to this, which um, one astronaut recently told a colleague of mine, which is that it's pretty hot work when you're doing this on the space station. And so the sweat that you produce doesn't run down your body. It actually flies off your body. And so when you're in the vicinity of someone who is exercising on the space station, you have to be really careful because otherwise you can walk into this cloud of their sweat bobbing around in the air and it doesn't taste very nice. <laughs> All right. Is it Colin? Colin in Soweto. Good morning. Good morning. You're fine. I'm fine. The ashes. <laughs> I've committed my brother and I've buried these ashes in the tombstone, in the head of the tombstone of our mother. What will eventually happen with those... Uh, do they become, do they stay ashes forever? Hi, Colin. I'm sorry to hear about your brother. Mm. Um, the bottom line is when we, when we burn someone what we're, and cremate them, what we're doing is we are turning all of the parts that will be turned into gases and burn easily into vapour, and that's lost when you cremate somebody. The ashes that remain are the which are largely salts and minerals. There'll be phosphorus, calcium, all that kind of thing. Some of them will dissolve. If uh, the rain comes, then it's going to soak into the ashes and some of the minerals will just dissolve away in the water and slowly leach into the ground. Others are going to be less soluble and so they may stay in the ground where you buried the ashes, at least for a while. But remember that other things are going on, other processes are happening in the ground. There are plants and flowers growing on grave sites. There are also organisms in the soil that are mixing the soil up and natural erosion patterns are also happening so after a while there's going to be very few ashes left in one place that have all been spread out again but you can't create or you can't destroy matter except in a nuclear reactor so there will it's it's kind of nice to think always be a part of your brother circulating in the air and also in the ground and actually recycling into all kinds of life because here on earth we've been here for about four and a half billion years all of the atoms and particles that are in us mm. well the vast majority of them were actually made in stars out there in deep space billions of years ago and we're all the the progeny of stars that lived and died and when we die we just recycle all of the elements the atoms that are in us back into nature and they're used again let's go to lerato in johannesburg good morning to you lerato very quickly please yes um, I wanted to find out, why is it that when a child is born, doesn't inherit only one parent's uh, pump? It's either on the left is going to look like the dad, and on the right is going to look like the mom. So a child inherits both pr parents' pump okay. prints. 
Is that true, Chris? Well, when a, a baby is born, it is actually a genetic mixture of the genes from its the genes from its dad, and the dad gives half the genes, and the mum gives the other half of the genes. And when a baby is developing, it, that one cell, the fertilised egg, then turns into about uh, a trillion or a hundred trillion cells by the time a baby has developed. So actually, there's no evidence that you inherit your fingerprints and palm prints from either parent. Mm -hmm. This process is actually down to the cells that form you, following a genetic instruction which is laid down in the DNA, and that DNA, as we've just established, is a mixture of mum and dad. So actually you are a, a fusion, a cake made from mixing the ingredients of your dad with the ingredients of your mum. So there's not really any evidence that babies get palm prints from, from one or the other parent. They actually get them and their whole body plan and their future, effectively, of, of what they're going to look like and how big they're going to be, is mapped out the minute they're conceived by contributions from the mum and the dad. Chris, have a lovely weekend. We chat to you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll podcast this conversation with Chris. Thank you. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.